Hey, just a heads up in this episode, we are going to be talking about suicide. Please take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please, please reach out for help. You can call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline available 24 hours a day. That is 988 in the United States. You can also call 1-800-273-8255. Please reach out and talk to someone if you need help. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today is the second of a two-part episode on Emergency Mental Health Dispatching, or EMHD, and Medical Priority Dispatch System Protocol 41, Caller in Crisis, which is also called the LifeBridges Protocol. The first part focused on the principles of EMHD. Now we're going to move into the specifics of the protocol itself. Rejoining us are Jim Marshall and Jason Scott with the 911 Training Institute. Jim is CEO and co-founder of the 911 Training Institute and a licensed mental health professional. Jason is the Partner Engagement Director and a Resilience and Call Mastery Instructor with the 911 Training Institute. He also works as a contractor for Priority Dispatch Corporation in many roles. Welcome back, Jim and Jay. <laughs> Thanks, Becca. Good hey, to be Becca, here. glad to be here. Glad to have you. I'm excited to jump into our chat about the LifeBridges protocol today. Its reputation precedes it. I've been looking forward to doing an episode on this since I first heard about it in like 2017 and have always been told, no, 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 wait until we're closer to releasing the protocol. Wait until it's, you know, integrated into the MPDS. And guess what, guys? It's finally getting integrated into the MPDS. I'm very, very excited. Ah. So am I. <laughs> it's been a long No one's more excited than us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think equally the academies. But I, I will say, you know, there's a reason why ProQA works. There's a reason why the protocols work. And that is there's an enormous amount of caution and care and thought and rethink that goes on. And I highly respect that whole process. So do things take longer than we wish they would? Absolutely. I'll be the first to say that. But it ain't over till it's over. I mean, the, when does a protocol become perfect? Never, right? So this thing is going to go through lots of iterations, but I'm grateful for the partnership of the academies and for their work in building out this protocol. Just grateful to be able to assist. So I know we covered in the first part of this two-part series, but could you each give a quick refresher on your career path? How and why are you where you are today? Jay, we'll start with you. All right. So I kind of fell into the world of 911 on a whim and found myself working as a dispatcher in a relatively large 911 center. And, you know, the short version of that is I was on the phone as a call taker, and I got really passionate about the protocols and uh, got to learn how the protocols work in and out, became a trainer, later became an instructor. And from there, I did branch out and worked radio as well. So I had a lot of years doing that too, but I really got into the idea of using the protocols as a uh, as a way of, of functioning and, and the value that that's in there. And when I hooked up with Jim, he uh, came into town as he has wont to do and taught a class and we got to know each other and became friends. And 
Then a couple of years goes by and he invites me to collaborate on this project. And that was, I think, 2018, maybe 2019, when we started up working in earnest together. And now we're here and it's finally come for public use. It's been a journey and uh, through the process, I've learned quite a bit sitting under the tree with Jim, teaching me about the psychological aspects of it. And, you know, and then I've taught him a lot of the dispatch stuff as well. So it's been, it's been a journey, but, uh, but now we're engaging in the next chapter. All right. We have the dispatch side covered. Jim, what are your qualifications? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm going to introduce myself differently than I did before. It's, I'm not like I'm going to fabricate an entirely different personage, but I'm going to make it relevant to the protocol. I was thrown into the deep end of the pond, let's say shark infested water at the beginning of my career in a rural psychiatric unit where people came from about a 100, 120 mile radius. And my job was to help psychiatrists do differential diagnostics. In other words, somebody comes in and they're presenting with features of bipolar disorder, but possibly also some features of schizophrenia. And the question then is, which is this? Or is it our organic mental syndrome, as we might be inclined to call it? So my job would be to use the tools of psychology and neuropsychology with some of the on-the-job training I had to be able to do that. Now, what I found was that as I sat with people and did this whole process of testing that could take many hours, was that the way that we were diagnosing and the way we were concluding our treatment plans had a lot to be desired. And so I became really a student of the process of how do we diagnose? And that came back to how do we listen to people and what questions do we ask? How do we help them to feel safe, being able to tell the rest of their story? So what I found as a young clinician was that the diagnostic categories are important, but the way we relate to the person to reach that diagnosis, the process of human with human was, was critical. And that really changed, or I should say, helped mold me as a young clinician, as a diagnostician. And then as I, I did more and more treatment with people with serious mental illnesses and relationship conflicts. So when I was brought into the 911 family and requested to build a course on suicide, I realized that we couldn't just, right, we couldn't just create a protocol. We had to look at what's the, what's the training process? How do we help build the mindset, the skill set, so that the dispatcher does not feel like they're being required to demand data from people in crisis, that people in crisis will not feel they can even give them because of ambivalence, mixed feelings, struggles, all that. So anyhow, that's how I got into this was from my background as a clinician. And that's what informed me in, in terms of the way I felt that we needed to build out helps for dispatchers relating to these callers in crisis. I love viewing the protocols as a tool, right? Because you wouldn't you wouldn't give someone a screwdriver, well, maybe you would, or a drill and say, all right, have at it, right? You have to have kind of at least basic training behind it. And for something as personal and sensitive as a caller in crisis, whether it's, you know, a suicide call or just mental health distress, you have to have the understanding behind it to be able to go in with as much compassion and empowerment as possible. That's right. Yeah. yeah empowerment is a, is a big component of that because the protocols are great for telling people what to do in a very specific situation. Cause that's what they're designed for. They're designed for very specific situations, you know, just a, maybe a step or two below a diagnosis. And then we ask these questions and give these instructions and have this result, you know, whereas what we're doing here, we're giving the, the dispatchers and call takers out there, a tool that allows them to be a little more dynamic in the way they process things. So to maintain the structure and the, and the necessity of structure that protocol brings, but also to give them the tools or imagine like a little tool belt with some words and phrases that they get to walk around with, you know, in order to make sure that that caller not only stays engaged, but that caller feels cared for. You know, that's one of the biggest things is that the caller understands that someone who's helping them genuinely wants to help them. 
And, and by equipping our people to do that, we allow them to do probably a lot more than in some cases, I think that they maybe feel like they could do, but they definitely have the capacity and the ability to do it well. Yeah. So if your listeners saying, okay, but what does the protocol look like? Well, that is being revealed and advanced by International Academies of Emergency Dispatch and Priority Dispatch Corporation. So we don't have to do that right now in this podcast, but think of it this way. Like any other protocol, Procure sets it right in front of you. One panel at a time, click, click, click. Having said that, that's built based on science of psychology, suicidology, traumatology. I mean, these are things, right? What we're doing is saying science needs to inform the questions that are asked for a caller in crisis who are having a mental crisis, just as it does medical crises. And we need to be real clear that what we're talking about isn't only suicide. What we want to be able to do is help rule out self-injurious behavior, which is different than an intent to kill self. Self-injurious behavior is separate. But then what about callers who have neither, how we're relating to their mental crisis, right? And this is part of the bigger conversation right now about 988, 911, optimizing the, the emergency response to these people, right? So what we have is, yes, it's a protocol. It's standardized in that sense. It takes the guesswork out of it, but it's informed by science like medical protocols are with the flexibility to pull in and out of the protocol as you need to relate humanly with the human. So what we say is the humans don't serve the tools, the tools serve the humans, right? And so when we look at the, the, the life bridge protocol or caller in crisis, what we need to afford is the chance for the dispatcher with somebody who shuts down, who's oppositional, who is flaring up with anger, who doesn't wanna give address, ways to relate to that person so that you can help the trajectory move towards safety for everyone on scene. So where Jay says a word here, a phrase there, not in terms of cookie cutter, oh, just say this, but helping them get inside and understand, not becoming psychologists, but simply becoming informed to understand what kind of suffering people are going through. What drives suicide, desire, hopeless, helpless, feeling trapped, intolerably alone? What drives these things? What do they most need from us in real time? Then the dispatcher can rally their own intelligence, their own life experience. And they're not just kind of riffing and saying mm -hmm. clinical stuff as a non-clinician, but they're able yeah. to relate in real time with better caring. And this increases the likelihood that the caller will answer the next question. We don't want to slow down reaching your dispatch points. We want to move towards them. But as leaders in protocol development will say, I don't want to mention anyone in particular, Sometimes the call has to just be longer and that's just the way it is. Not yeah. because we don't know what to do or because we're trying to become clinicians on the phone, but because if we're going to assure scene safety, there's things we have to ask and answers we have to get. Yeah. And like as a person who teaches protocol instruction all over the place, the pressure is always to get done faster. But the reality is calls need to take the time that they need to take. You know, and, and when you try to skim seconds off of a call, that's when we enter into a greater risk reliability than taking longer. And especially with callers in crisis, you know, that's when we really have to invest our time in, in these callers, one, to make sure they get the right help they need, because we have an obligation ethically and legally to get them the help they require. But also in these stressful situations, if we continue to put stress on our staff to get done faster, 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 that's going to build up stress on their side of the right. equation as well. So right. we have to be careful as, as leaders or as managers, trainers, whatever, whatever our role may be at the comm center, that we can use this tool to get a more efficient way of handling calls, but we should never be thinking that it has to be done faster. It needs to be done in the time it takes to get it done. But we think that our, our protocol use here with LifeBridges, that flex option allows our call takers to be more empowered to get to an end 
maybe, maybe more quickly in some cases, yeah. but definitely get to the right, the right result. Right. I love this talk about the balance between, you know, not being a robot and rushing through the protocol and also not being an armchair clinician, right? Like Jay said, it's going to take as long as it needs to take. And one of the benefits of the LifeBridges protocol of the collar and crisis protocol is that when the emergency dispatcher hangs up, they know they've done everything that they could do, right? Jim talks about this in in the first part of this two-part series. He called it clean grief or pure grief, right? Where if things don't end up the most optimal way, at least the emergency dispatcher can hang up and say, I've done all that I could do, which is invaluable in this line of work. Yeah, It is. And I want to speak for Jim because he's the clinician here. You, you know, speak as the nine one pro. It's a half the equation. Don't, don't let his good hair fool you. He has many, many years under that cap. As a person who came into this business with very little concept of what a nine one one pro actually does, I instantly felt powerless in a variety of situations. Like a protocol can tell me what to do if someone's diabetic or if a house is on fire, how to get someone to safety, whatever. But when we've got someone saying, "Hey, I don't want to live anymore," and that's it. There's no caveat. There's no, what are you going to do about it? There's no, there's no confrontation. There's just a statement of fact. Hey, I no longer want to live anymore. I want to take my life. You know, I'm depressed. You know, any of any of those things that a common crisis might say, you're kind of stuck there with, well, uh, okay, that sucks, right? The lack of empowerment isn't necessarily, isn't necessarily end of the road because our protocol lets people know, hey, we're going to empower you, but we're not going to put words in your mouth. You know, ultimately all our curriculum comes down to just being human with the human. Right. And then maybe there are some prompts along the way that can help. Maybe there are some some trainings that will make that a little more easier for you or make you more comfortable doing that. But ultimately, it comes down to empowering the call taker to be a person talking to another person, one of whom happens to be in crisis. The more we can teach people to do that and be comfortable in those situations, you know, our hope is that they can also take some of those skills and some of that mindset to their personal life as well. Because caller in crisis doesn't have to just end at work. Those concepts are universal that can help people in a variety of ways. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be clear, this is not different in that in that regard from the rest of the protocols in the sense that the way that I know that the academies wants a calls cute is you, you really want to feel that that sense of respect and support for, for the caller. It's not antithetical to, to EMD or, you know, uh, police dispatch or fire to be you know, respectful and curious of the caller. It's just more complicated when it's a caller in crisis, when they're in mental states that, that make them more confusing or more of an enigma to the dispatcher or threatening to the dispatcher. And this is why resilience training has to be integrated into use of even the protocol. So the four hour course that, that accompanies caller in crisis that's required for each telecommunicator to, to take before they turn on that protocol and use it is for their own good. And I don't mean that this for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it that way. You know, swallow this for your own good. It's it's really we want to make sure that they feel that they can manage their own distress in real time while they're going through this call type, which is so difficult, right? And also rally their their own humanity the best they can. Yes, 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 yes. And we talked in the first part again. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. But we talked in the first part about conveying intent. So when you're queuing calls, just regular run-of-the-mill calls, right? The queue is listening for, you know, phrases. They're looking for asking the correct questions at the right time. Whereas this is more flexible because 
you you realize that dispatchers can do more, right? You realize that there is a real strength and a real undertapped resource of the dispatcher's humanity in mm. these types of calls. I like untapped humanity. I like that because, you know, I, in our first part that we recorded uh, a while ago, you know, we talked about the, the dispatchers having the ability to do more. I don't want that to be misinterpreted as increasing the workload because we, we hope things will go the opposite direction. Right. We're not saying that they can do more in the sense that they can pile more onto them because anyone listening to this that works on a comp center is already overworked, right? That's a huge important point, Correct. right? A thousand percent, yeah. And so the hope is that this flex protocol will allow them the freedom to become really their their best self because ultimately what we're trying to tap into is the humanity, right? But we got to filter it through procedures and policies and protocol and everything else. But ultimately that humanity is what we're trying to bring out with the flex protocol because that humanity is going to build the alliance we need with the caller to get them to a positive outcome. Combined with science, and this is why the protocol is what the protocol is, right? Just as every turn of phrase in the protocols designed by the academies is, is thought out, is argued, debated until it's finally reached. And then after all that is revised next year, right? We need to make sure that the questions that are being asked are based on science. We're not setting the dispatcher up to wing it. When we talk about humanity, we don't mean now we're just winging it. No, no, no. The protocol is critically important. Having said that, there's flexibility. And even then, the example messaging we're offering dispatchers to use within the protocol it has also got to be informed by psychology and, and by conversational analysis. They don't have to be clinicians to use it. Really, the biggest thing when, we, when we're talking about that H word, the humanity, along with the guidance we're giving them, what we call the mental states menu, is that they can just breathe a little easier because the caller is not an enigma to them. Part of the training that we want them to have in emergency health dispatching that surrounds the light bridges protocol is to go, oh, so the person who's cutting, that's not just freakazoid behavior. Oh, that's not just a 10 code out there. That's not just a crazy. When The more they have some sense of awareness, understanding of the people, that's what rehumanizes things. So sometimes that only comes across in the tone of the voice, in the response of, that sounds, wow, that sounds tough. You're, okay, I'm right here with you. You're doing a good job. It's not rocket science, but it's more legit. Because what, what we know, customer service, and the idea of building rapport can seem superficial and it's a shutdown for the caller. Yeah. You know, I really want to help you. I care about you. I want to do my best with you. Okay, that sounds fine. But when that's at the front of a call, it's like that doesn't necessarily sound authentic. Yeah. What makes it sound authentic, right? It, it is, oh, go ahead, Jay, jump in. I, I was just thinking of a conversation that we had last week, Jim, when we were doing a little role play session. And I just, you know, I said the, the phrase, I understand. And then it's like, wait a second, let's dissect that. How could you understand my situation? Now, you know, I won't make you guys privy to the hour-long conversation we had about this. This is just the way we operate. But, you know, like we're, we're so used to just giving platitudes. Every word we have with a caller in crisis means so much than just a typical garden variety call. Like we can say, sure, I understand that's tough, you know, to someone who had a fender bender, right? Or maybe somebody who spilled their iced coffee and slipped and fell, right? These things happen, but it's not the end of the world. But with callers in crisis, we could very really be looking at the end of someone's world in that moment, or at the very least, their world will never be the same again after that call. So our words have so much weight. And therefore, we do have to think about is what we're saying really helpful and does it sound genuine? And it's got to meet it's got to meet both of those parameters for us to really sign off on it, because, mm -hmm. you know, we have to continue to, to build rapport with somebody by letting them know that we're present, you know, by engaging them. 
you know, and, and empowering the call takers and dispatchers to do that, I think is what's going to, is what sets this protocol apart. Cause we're not saying things have to be linear. We're just saying that we have to do our best to be human. And that's all we're doing is we're just encouraging people to be themselves. And giving them the support to do so, right? Because there you go. Yeah, that's it. You, if you give people the the permission to be human, that gives them analysis paralysis, right? Choice paralysis, where it's like, oh, okay, well, like, which part of my humanity do I use? And which, again, like, they don't know what they can say to a suicidal caller, what they can say to, you know, a caller that's manic or depressed, because the response. And, and the phrases will be not extremely different, but subtly different. And so this this gives them a tool like we've been calling it this whole time. This gives them a tool to use and tells them how to use it and when to use it so that they don't have to panic about saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so right, right, right. Exactly. Look at it this way. So I just sat with dispatchers and a shout out to, to Wellfleet, Massachusetts and dispatchers from the Cape who were there in the training. And it was a tremendous discussion. It was a one-day EMHD course. And, and what one of them asked, and this was not a newer person, this was more of a veteran dispatcher. What she says is, I, I think we're all afraid of saying the wrong thing and hurting people. And so what happens is when you activate more cortisol because you're anxious about making mistakes and hurting people, that's what takes away from your humanity. You know, we're not trying to talk about like a hippie kingdom of humanity here. We're talking about the reality that it's hard to just be my best self with the caller when I'm afraid of screwing up. So what I offered at the class and they were like, oh, it was almost like a collective sigh of relief. I said, here's here's the bottom line. It is very, very hard to kill a caller as a dispatcher. Unless you are heinously offensive to that person struggling with suicide, you're not going to say the wrong thing in a way that's going to put them over the edge. You do want to say things in the most optimal ways possible. All right. But but if you're sincere with the person, if they can just pick up on sincerity and then when you have the power of a protocol that's science driven, you have flexibility to step in and out when they shut down, when they when they won't answer your next question. And, you know, you're not going to kill them, you know, unless you're totally horrible to them, then and what happens? You relax. Now we're able to be our best trained selves. That's the purpose of the tools. And that's the physiology, right? That's the physiology. I would invite listeners to think about a time when they were extremely stressed, like, you know, that adrenaline push, whether it was on a call or a near miss when they were driving their car. Are you making your most optimal decisions in that moment? No, absolutely not. Your body is sending out signals that say, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to do one thing or the other. There's no other options. I just need to survive, right? That's right. If you have the training, if you have it integrated into you, if you're able to relax, you are just, you're going to make better choices. And that is, as Jim says, science. That's it. Yeah, that's a great way to sum it up. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's funny because like, like Jim said, people say, oh, I'd never know what to say. And the reality is like, Unless you're being criminally negligent, you're not going to say something to someone that's going to push them. You know, the worst case scenario, you might say something that makes them just tune out because, like, oh, this guy's this guy's fake. But our people don't don't always operate in an environment where they feel like they can make mistakes. And you know, what mm-hmm. we invite with the Life Bridges protocol is collaboration between them and the caller. You know, and there may be a time when we say the wrong thing or a time when we use the wrong tack, mm-hmm. and the protocol allows for them to kind of circle back and reorient themselves with the caller. And, and basically reground the caller and letting them know, hey, I'm here with you. And that's what building an alliance does. It allows for, you know, little small missteps here and there as we allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough so the caller can be vulnerable with us. You know, it's not always going to be a straight path and it's not always going to be an easy one. But we make sure that the call takers know, hey, 
within the five or 10 minutes you may have this caller, you can do a lot of good work. Yeah, that's right. Now, and if we circle what Jay said, float it right up to the side, and I'm going to add one to this. This is really important because this is the companion piece. Well, I, I say one thing, and that is it's pretty hard to kill the caller as a dispatcher. Now, having said that, right, the reason I say that is I explained already, right, is that we don't want them so anxious that they're tripping over themselves. Having said that, it's also true that you can miss a lot of opportunities to get to the best outcome of the call, to optimize their ability to tell you the truth. What helps somebody give you address? What helps them tell you that they actually picked the weapon back up after they had separated the from the means? What's gonna even help them be willing to agree with you to separate from the means? There are many parts of the call when the dispatcher is trying to get uh, case entry information, when they're trying to get collaboration from the caller related to the means, or let's say take suicide out of the picture, just the caller to be to decide they even want to stay on the phone with them because they're hearing voices and they're not sure which voices to obey. In all of these situations, you're not going to kill the caller by not being optimal, but you may miss a lot of opportunities such that the call doesn't go where it needs to go. Right At the end of the day, no one may die. But what we're doing is bringing the science into it along with the freedom to be yourself so that you're far more apt to get from the start of the call to a successful end of the call where the rest of help is on its way. Right. Because, again, emergency dispatchers, call takers, they aren't 988 call takers, right? They're not clinicians. They're not... They're not, I don't want to say they're not the solution, right? They're not the end goal, right? They really are just kind of guiding the caller through the point where they're calling and saying, oh, I need help, but like, I don't want help. I don't want law enforcement to show up at my house. They are holding their hand metaphorically through that situation until someone else can come on scene. Is that Fair to say? I get where you're going. I, I guess the way I look at it is I was asked by a, a client of ours last week. They said, so why wouldn't we put a clinician in place of a dispatcher? And I'm like, well, because they can't do the job. So, you know, they, there's a big difference in the clinical burden that a mental health professional has and then the work that we do behind the console. And I don't think one's better than the other. They're just a different set of responsibilities. Kind of like every paramedic couldn't be a nurse. Every nurse couldn't go and be a paramedic, you know? So I think the best way I would characterize the 911 pros role in that is, you know, yeah, there is some handholding sometimes. You know, there, there is some, you know, kicking the tires, waiting on someone to get there. But then there's a lot of very acute crisis management exactly. that happens that happens like on a very human to human basis. And if a clinician or a hostage negotiator or someone like that with that level or that kind of training is put in that situation, they may not get the intended result because that's just not what they do. Right. You know, you take like a, a person who's in charge of a SWAT team or something, they may have all this crisis negotiation training, but that's not going to help someone unlock the front door necess necessarily. Right. right. Yeah. It's yeah. Not, yeah. You know, it's not going to get us that like what we do is so niche and so specific that we have to remember it's its own it's its own discipline. Yeah. Now, what I would say, though, is we can train clinicians to be specialized dispatchers if they are trained as telecommunicators and they bring psych into it. And I think that would be a phenomenal model. I believe that's happening in some of our centers. And if any of our listeners are income centers where they are working that model, I would love for them to contact us so we can talk about it. Having said that, it's, it's a good point. At the beginning of the call, number one, basic dispatch all day long. EMHD in the, the Leverage Protocol does not pull us away from basic dispatch. It assures that the fundamentals of dispatch are fulfilled, meaning scene safety is number one, right? So we have to be ruling out issues of scene safety. 
And so the telecommunicator is doing that at the front. And so I would say there's handholding only to the extent that there is uh, there's there's human connection. But there's a lot. Jay really hit it when he said there's a lot of immediate critical assessment going on. And that's what the crisis and caller protocol, LightBridge protocol helps them do. Right. That's really, really important. Having said that, too, we need to see that what's been missing. Now, I, I'm going to do this, be as succinct as I can. My profession, psychology and psychiatry, right? Social work, clinical social work. As a profession, we don't understand that the telecommunicator is the very beginning of the care continuum. So we don't necessarily look to their information for guidance. So Joe calls 911, it's three o'clock in the morning. He calls Jason, right? And he tells Jason, he's got a 30, 30 sawed off. This is a real call, by the way. Got a 30, 30 sawed off. There's no reason to live. He'd be better off if his arse is six feet under. His wife's gonna leave me, he has chronic pain, et cetera, et cetera. It's a heck of a call. Thing is though, we send people, right? Now, how does that happen? How much of, of Jason's data actually gets to the emergency department if it's a traditional setting? and is reviewed as part of it, formulating what, what his problem is. I show up at three o'clock in the morning. I'm the mental health professional brought in there to evaluate Joe. At this time, he doesn't want to be there. He's scared to death of being locked up. He's having flashbacks. He just wants it to end. He doesn't believe that help is going to actually work for him. So he, he lies to me as a mental health professional, not because he's trying to game me because he's scared he wants to go home. No, no, I just, I didn't. And here's the thing. We don't have hardly any information in the emergency department about him. The call information from the dispatcher never reaches the emergency department. Almost never, right? So he can convince me that he's safe. I send him home, he takes out his wife, then he waits for suicide by cop to take him out, potentially losing officers along the way. This doesn't have to happen. The dispatcher has the golden information. We're working on a pilot right now in Volusia County in Florida, where the LifeBridge's data goes up into a cloud immediately and can be accessed by the mental health professionals in the emergency department. What does that mean then? I come in at three o'clock in the morning, Joe tries to say, no, 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 yeah, I threaten suicide. I do that sometimes. I get PO'd at the government and crap, but no, I'm good. I, my guns are all locked up. I'm NRA. Aren't you NRA? <laughs> right? So then what happens? The, the, what we just said, but now what if there's a life bridges cloud and the data in the cloud and I get a knock on the door, the nurse says, Mr. Marshall, there's uh, life bridges cloud information for you. Okay, Joe, hold on. I'll be right back. Joe's secure. What do I do? I step out. I put on a headset. I listen to the call. And in the LifeBridges cloud is all the information gathered by the LifeBridges protocol right there at my fingertips. I'm reading this. I go back in the room to Joe. Now I can say, Joe, you took, you rallied a lot of courage, man, this morning. You were really opened up. You were honest with that dispatcher. That must have been so hard. Listen, let's have a real conversation because I understand it was sawed off. You were saying your goodbyes. You have 11 different medical conditions and you believe your wife is going to leave you. Let's have a real conversation now, shall we? Think about the care continuum, how that's gonna play out, not only when it's inpatient care and how they're gonna do in short term, but how that's gonna inform the rest of his care continuum, mental health therapy, it's all the supports. It's a game change, right? So, and it starts with us respecting as a nation and really worldwide that the role of that emergency response, whether it's 999-112 or 911, that that telecommunicator has the golden opportunity. The thin gold line is actually golden in terms of its ability to gather critical information. Yes, I love that. I love the point that this protocol will be able to help clinicians see more of the story, right? Because mental health is such a 
fluctuating live thing, right? Dr. Paul likes to talk about the protocols and say they're live. They, they're always changing. And, you know, you always need to check back in and make sure, because even if things have changed, you need to check in with that patient, with Joe and say, okay, so earlier we're saying this, are you in a better place now? Like what's going on? And you're right. In order to be able to do that, you have to have the information gathered by the call taker using their specific and very special set of skills. Yeah, that's right. We are all united in agreeing, and even my clinician and colleagues, that the system is, the care system is somewhat broken and that people who are poor don't get the same quality of help and people who are been diagnosed or misdiagnosed are not necessarily getting to the treatment they need. But, you know, let's back all the way up and say, if we're going to look at overhauling the system in the United States, let's begin by recognizing the role of the telecommunicator the more empowered they are, like with the crisis and caller protocol. All the data, if we'll create that Lightbridge's cloud that I'm talking about, all the help going downstream from there is better informed. And we know that the more we understand in, in the process of assessment, the better the treatment. Jason, do you have anything to add? I love it when Jim gets uh, excited and gets on a roll because he, he keeps going another 20, 30 minutes if you let him, you know, because we're, <laughs> we're passionate about this because we, on the one hand, it's important and we all care about improving the quality of care for our patients. You know, that's central to every facet of what we do. But man, so much of what we do in, in helping our patients have better care really helps our dispatchers have better care. Mm. You know, and, and we see that that's just as important. You know, it's not all about, oh, well, let's have a positive outcome. Let's have fewer transports. Like all that stuff is great. But man, if the people behind the console are burning out and quitting, or can't, just can't function anymore and falling victim to the numerous maladies that, that are an epidemic in our business. You know, if we can just do one little bit to chip away at some of that, then I think we've, we've done a lot of good and that matters a lot to us. Yeah, Yes. absolutely. Not to be cliche, but like, you know, the guy on the beach throwing starfish back into the ocean one-on-one -on -one and people are like, you're never going to be able to do them all. It's like, well, matter to that one, right? So it's, it's going to matter to the caller. It's going to matter to the call taker that they feel supported and seen that's really the meta message that i'd like to give to anyone listening who's a pro like sure like you could see this life bridges is another protocol we got to use it's something to learn i get that i've been there but i also want you to, to, to be challenged to think well maybe it is something new i have to take on and maybe it's something new i have to expend some energy and time learning but maybe this will actually make things easier for me you know mm -hmm. yeah maybe this will actually make the rest of the job run a little more smoothly like that would be my challenge to anyone. And as we get feedback on like bridges, like I'm hoping that we hear people say that, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing the same amount of calls and the same amount of hours and overtime and stuff. But maybe it's just a little bit easier than it was before, because over time, it's only going to get better. Yep. Yep. You boost confidence and you decrease what's called emotional labor. The less unnecessary emotional labor a dispatcher has to rally, the less tired they're at the end of the shift, the more they get to be able to, to go home and have something to offer the people that matter most to them in the world. It kind of all loops together. Yeah, absolutely. It's all connected. We're all connected. Again, not to sound all hippy-dippy woo-woo, but like we are. <laughs> far We're... out, Becca. Far out. <laughs> far out. Groovy, me, right? You know, Becca, I would, I would go so far. I mean, I, I hate to, to say it, but like maybe we do need to tap into some of that feel-good stuff more often. Yeah. You know, because it's not just about feeling good. There's so much data that supports having a positive mm -hmm. mental attitude, you know, making positive affirmations, connecting powerfully with people, whether they're people we know or people we don't know. Like all of these things build to this, this human enrichment that sometimes we neglect because we're so walled up 
right? We're so afraid of being vulnerable that we don't realize there's strength in vulnerability, mm. right? And, man, and that's part of our message at the Nylon Training Institute is that vulnerability is a strength. Diversity is a strength. These are not things that make us weaker. They are things that inherently make us stronger, but it's kind of an abstract strength, right? And if people can't focus on something, they have a hard time embracing it. You know, so hopefully we can can get people to knock down some of those barriers that they put up and embrace what we're doing here. Well said, Jason. Yeah, and I'm going to get a little bit real, a little bit personal here for a minute. I have depression. I have anxiety. It's genetic. I, you know, got put on antidepressants when I was 16, 17 and needed them for several years before then. And so anytime anyone talked about like, oh, look for the positive things in life or, oh, be grateful. I was like, oh, that's garbage. Like, I just, I can't, (laughs) I can't, right? But in, in the past couple years, I have... I've had to cultivate something I like to call militant positivity. Um, oh, that's actually, yeah. Right, because I my brain is just not wired to a point where I, you know, if if I'm not constantly looking at things and saying, oh, this is awesome, or oh, this connection is great, or oh, actually being vulnerable in that situation made things a whole lot better, even though I didn't want to do it. It's It's so necessary, and I feel like... A lot of times when people, especially who have mental illness or who are in jobs like this, where they just see the horrible sides of humanity all the time, I feel like it's it's valuable to point that out to say, right, like if you can't find positivity, you need to like make it your mission. You need to hold on to it, grab onto it with all you have, the good things in your life. You need to be looking for those things because it changes how you look at things and how you interact with people. And again, like you said, it's, it's all about connection. It's all about being able to relate to people around you. You know, you know what I think kills us Becca, is in this business, we get so myopic in the way we look at things. I ask this question, I get this answer. Like so many things get reduced to just binary situations. It's yes, no, it's all zeros and ones. And unfortunately, self-care gets caught up in that as well. Well, I have a day off. So in, so a day off makes it better, right? Well, no, not if you spend the day off agonizing over going back to work the next day. you know. And it takes a long time for people to realize that the, the effects of, of this ongoing stress are killer. you know. And so when we say we're empowering people with LifeBridge protocol, like, yes, the main focus is call mastery. But it's also about a little more self-mastery learning to recognize what these mental states are, learning to recognize how we need to approach these situations in, in all facets of our life. You know, I, I think that it could be something that is a catalyst for people in the business to think differently about the way they interact with themselves and, and the people around them. And that's why I say like we have to, like you said, being militantly positive, you know, sometimes you have to be militantly positive in order to make a step forward because the environment can be such that without militant, just absolute obnoxious positivity, you won't be able to improve. And maybe so, you need to be militant until you don't have to be militant anymore. Okay, so let's challenge ourselves on this, right? So, because uh, I think a lot of our dispatchers may feel the way Joe, our featured caller, does in one of our classes when he's he deciding whether or not to pull the trigger. And he says, give me something to be positive about, right? Okay, now, pause right there. Because if you're struggling, as Beckett knows, with clinical depression, it can feel like, you know, go ahead and just drag that car up the hill and we'll give you a glass of water when you get there. Yeah, like good luck with that, right? Because what's happened? We have developed over years struggling with depression, grooves in our brain, let's call them neural networks, right? The pictures, emotions, thoughts, sensations are negative. I can't, I'm not good enough. If people really knew me, they wouldn't love me. I'm an imposter, et cetera, et cetera. When we have negative beliefs that we've been practicing throughout our lives, they are the deep grooves that guide where we're going tomorrow. Now let's back up on this. 
Let's, let's tie it together with the protocol and EMHD in, in, in the collar in crisis. When the telecommunicator feels like they don't really know what they're doing and they're trying to wing it, that can reinforce the negative beliefs that fuel their own depression. But what we do know from the resilience science and Dr. McCready from HeartMath Institute, our, our partnering agency with us, we know is when that caller is able to generate positive emotion, even during that call, the activation of that positive emotion creates 1,400 or more biochemical and hormonal changes inside that telecommunicator, which can impact the depressed state. Now let's back up. What will activate the positive emotion during the call? A feeling of confidence. What we know is when you feel confidence, hey, because you know what? I get this protocol thing. I, I get this guidance that I'm doing. I get that I got more flexibility, right? And I'm not all on my own. I feel like I know what the heck I'm doing right now. That changes the biochemistry and that protects the telecommunicator. It boosts DHEA, a master hormone, it boosts oxytocin. It changes the way that cortisol flows to the body. It stops the production of cortisol. So now we're talking about is you're actually treating your own depression, preventing depression and PTSD by having the right tools in the moment to relate human to human. Amazing. You guys, science is awesome. <laughs> it is. And, and it all starts with just saying, you know what? I think I can do this. Yeah. That's it. I can that do this. It. I got this. Yeah, exactly. That's and the, I got this response. Yeah. Yeah. And if you've gotten this far in the podcast and you don't feel like you can take one of these calls after, you know, being given the tools and the resources and the training that goes along with it, like you can, you can do it. And I believe in you and Jim believes in you and Jay believes in you. And that's why we're here, right? Like we're here to imbue you with confidence until you have some of your own. Mm. Support who they are, support who now pros are. We have a huge natural resource in the intelligence and the dedication of all the people sitting in those seats right now. We just need to give a little bit more help, right? And then sit back and watch them rock the calls. Yeah. And, and my, my appeal, like, because I, I can just imagine some people are listening to this and they're driving to work, right? And they're just like, oh, come on, these guys, right? You know, like my credentials, yeah. Jim's credentials are meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. We could talk about all the PhDs that we have on staff. It doesn't mean anything. You know, what means something is that what we give you works. You know, so my challenge yeah, to anybody out there is like, give LifeBridges a spin, go to our website, check out the information, you know, check out our partners at CartMath. We built something that is bigger than just a protocol. It, and it will, it will help you more than just helping you with the call in front of you. And our, and our challenge to you remains like, use this to better help your callers, but also use it as a jump off to help yourself. And I'll say one final thing, truly, you're gonna have to make me talk after this, I promise. <laughs> Challenge us. Tell us what you think is BS right now. I'm going to be real clear. The call and crisis protocol is offered by Priority Dispatch Corporation through a lot of involvement of the academies over the last number of years. We've contributed that. We brought to them and then it evolved and developed out. We are the providers of the training. We collaborate in development. We are the providers of the training that surrounds it. And I will just say this, and, I, and I'm sure the academies, is, you know, what has the academies done over all the years? Welcome criticism. And it's the, it's the contributions of thousands of people in the field in that one that have helped create the, the, every new iteration, moving to 14 right now, it, right? Because of real collaboration. So we, I don't think this is the best thing since, since sliced bread and it's perfect, but it's gonna get there. It's gonna get closer with input from everybody. So please be our collaborators. Absolutely. 
What an invitation to leave on. I love that. We have been chatting for a while and I could I could keep chatting with both of you forever. I think I might have to make you like guest hosts on the podcast just because it's been so much fun. But Jay and Jim, before we wrap up, if there's just one message that you could leave with the listeners, what would that be? I would say no matter what you're doing, no matter where you work, no matter what your setup is, just take a look at yourself and say, am I really doing my best work? And that's not an invitation to try to work harder or to take on more. But with what you're doing, are you really able to do your best? And if the answer is no, then challenge yourself to find a way to improve that. Because I think you'll find that the answer doesn't lie in, in quantity, but in quality. And I would I would say, and I remember Jay Scott, who I saw and I looked at as a professional when he was at Charleston County Consolidated. And I thought to myself, this guy has so much to offer. And I bet you right now he's frustrated enough that he has more that he can deliver. If you're frustrated right now in your profession and you feel like there's more that you can deliver, then I'm going to say work with your leaders to the extent that they'll work with you. Be someone who offers ideas, offers solutions. Don't self-defeat yourself because of what you see that needs to be changed. Be a part of changing that. And if you don't have the energy to do it and you're feeling burned out, get some help because you deserve to have the same high quality of life you're trying to help all those humans calling you get. You know, please take care of yourself while you're taking care of everybody else. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the podcast today. If you're listening and you want to learn more about the Life Bridges Protocol or about Jim or Jay, you can visit 901training.net. There will also be a lesson on the College of Emergency Dispatch about the Collar and Crisis Protocol to help you get more of a background and learn more of the psychology on what goes, goes on behind it. And I believe there will even be simulations where you can practice using it so that you don't have to go in blind. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us, as always, at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And Jim and Jay, I salute you. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me today. Thank you. You bet, Becca. Thank you. You're doing a great job. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 